Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now, here's our Associate Pastor for Adult Discipleship, Jack Gatewood. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and open to the first chapter of Judges. Keith's been teaching for the last 12 weeks of the book of Joshua, highlighting some of the great stories there and the great lessons. These last two weeks, he's taught through the 23rd and 24th chapters of Joshua, where Joshua called the elders and then called the entire congregation together to give them a final charge before his own passing. Joshua had succeeded Moses, and the Hebrews had crossed the Jordan River and they successfully militarily conquered the Promised Land. There remained, though, a tremendous amount of work to be done as the book of Joshua ends. I want to describe the situation like this. If you could imagine with me for a moment that Russia came over and beat the United States in a war. And they captured NORAD. They took out and captured all of our naval bases up in Maryland and along the coast. They destroyed New York City and they captured Washington, D.C. and they captured Los Angeles. And they said, we have now won the war. The problem would be for them is they would have to come in and take every single village, town, and community out. And that would be no small task. And they would face resistance every step of the way, regardless of what had happened to the great armies. And this is the situation that faced the Hebrews. They had conquered the land militarily, but there were a great number of cities and villages that now needed to be taken. So, we read in the first chapter of Judges, beginning with the first verse. It came about that after the death of Joshua, that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us to fight the Canaanites, to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. And thus began the conquest of the entire land. This was the charge to go in and destroy all the Canaanites, run them out, kill them all, and take over the land. And as God had called Abraham, and then Abraham had passed, and Isaac had succeeded him, and then Isaac had passed, and uh, Judah, uh, Jacob had succeeded him, and Jacob had passed, and then Joseph succeeded him, and Moses came to deliver the people, and after he passed, Joshua came and succeeded him. And now after Joshua passes, the people are told to be about the business. And this is the first point I want to make, that God is always about His business and His commands and His calling and His leading. And He doesn't depend on one man. And those men that He does call will eventually pass. They always do, but God's work never ends as long as He tarries before He returns. I've been in a couple of churches that have lost a pastor, and it's, a, uh, it's traumatic. It's traumatic for the church. It's traumatic for the staff. 
Sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it doesn't go well. But God is about His business. And I believe that in almost everyone's life, you've experienced some change and some loss. We've had 49 deaths in the church in the last year and a half. Many of you have experienced the loss in your own family, and it hurt, and you wondered, what will you do? Some of you have lost uh, an employer, a boss, a key employee, a neighbor, someone that you knew who has moved away or gone on to be with the Lord. Something's happened to bring change. Some of you have seen children go off to college. Maybe it's your first, and it's difficult, or it's your last, and it's more difficult. Or you're seeing them go to school for the first time, and it's a traumatic change. God wants us to know that through all the experiences of loss and change, He is always there calling His people to be faithful. And so they said, Lord, what shall we do? Joshua's gone. And he said, you go into the land and you do all that I've asked you to do. So we read what they did. And we're going to skip over to chapter, verse 27 of chapter 1 of Judges. Chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. It came about that when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahaholai, nor the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. So, yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. This is the picture. Judah and Simeon did great. They went in and conquered the land and drove out the Canaanites and destroyed them from amongst them. But... The rest of the tribes did not do the job. The rest of the tribes went in and had partial success. And they tolerated and allowed the Canaanite people to live among them. How important is that? Well, we read back in Deuteronomy chapter 9. It says this. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness... The Lord has brought me into the possessed land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out from before you 
in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to his fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to understand that the Canaanite tribes were being punished very specifically by God. They had lived there for hundreds of years, and they had never turned to following God. They had heard of God. They were descendants of people that knew the Lord, but they had turned away and turned away in a wicked, wicked manner. And so as God has told His people, you go in and you destroy, you kill, you do not leave a child, you do not leave a woman, you do not leave the cattle, you do not leave a man alive, you destroy them all. It was not because God was vindictive, but He was punishing sin, because God always punishes sin. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9-12, through says, When you enter the land, speaking to the Hebrew children, when you enter the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his sons or his daughters pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out from before you. This was the problem, God said. If you allow these people to live amongst you, although it may seem humane, it may seem kind, it may seem tolerant, they will pull you in and pull you away from me and pull you to worship their gods. And God warned them over and over and over. And Joshua warned the people over and over in the last two chapters, you shall not let them live, but drive them out. Kill them or drive them out, but they will not coexist with you in the land. God knew what would happen. And you have to understand the allure of the Baal worship. The Baal worship was a wicked, wicked way of worshiping God, who they thought was God. The people of the land uh, farmed, and they depended upon their God sending rain. So they prayed to God, prayed to the God that they called Baal. And in almost all the heathen gods in those days, those heathen gods had heathen goddesses. And so the thought was, if the gods are happy, and if the gods are fruitful, and the gods are enjoying pleasure amongst themselves, then our land too will be fruitful and produce for us. And the physical pleasure of their gods was very important. And so in their worship of their gods, the Baal worship, there was a lot of stuff going on to uh, remind their gods that physical pleasure is a big deal and being fruitful is a big deal. And so they had temple prostitutes. And in their sacred worship of Baal, they would enter into their places of worship and engage in activities that we really don't want to talk about, all to encourage their God to be the same way and pour out His rain and His sunshine and make the land fruitful. And if we are doing this down here in the temple for you, then you can pour out and we'll get the wine and we'll get the grains and we'll get uh, the oil and all those good things will happen. And God said, I'm going to drive that people out. That's so wicked, so wicked. But what happened is as the Hebrew children went into the land and they let people stay, even though it says they put many of them to forced labor, that was not the goal. God just said, I'm going to give you a bunch of slaves. He says, you drive them out, you kill them. 
Because if you don't, they're going to draw your people in. And so they left the people in. And I'm sure they ran into the Canaanites in the markets and in the farmers' markets. And as they gathered to sell crops and trade goods and services, they would meet the people. And they would exchange pleasantries and say, how's it going for you? He said, well, this is a tough land. You know, we, we uh, Hebrews haven't been farmers. We were shepherds, and that was a long time ago. And we came through the desert, and God was good, and he delivered us and uh, brought us across the river, and we had great military victories. And this farming is tough stuff. And the Canaanites said, yeah, you have a great God. He gave you some tremendous victories, but uh, we can help you with that farming thing. Uh, in fact, we've got a meeting tonight at one of our high places. Why don't you bring a couple of your boys over and we'll talk to you how you can make the land more productive. Okay? And that's how the conversation might have gone. I don't know. But the men of Israel and then their sons got, got drawn into worshiping things they should not have done. And the remaining Canaanites were not a physical or military threat. They were rather a spiritual cancer. And I don't know a lot about cancer, but this much I do understand. As I have talked with uh, people who have survived cancer, that when they go in for tests, the thing they're looking for is that there will be no cancer cells remaining. Isn't that what we look for if you have cancer, Desmond? You look for other tests that says there are no cells remaining. But this was the problem. By allowing the Canaanite people to remain in the land, they were remaining the cancerous worship and their cancerous lifestyle uh, to be in the land, and it infected them, and it permeated the Jewish people. And this led God to great anger. And we're going to read in chapter 2, verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them. And the enemies, I'm sorry, the hand of the Lord was against them. For evil as the Lord had, uh, for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. And this kind of anger, this kind of jealousy should not surprise us. We read in Exodus where the Lord said, Be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite from before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god but the Lord, whose name is Jealous, he is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and you would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlots with their gods. The price for us to come into relationship with a living, true holy, omniscient, omnipotent, one God in heaven is this, that He is a jealous God and He brooks no other gods in our life. And if He's jealous, well, folks, we just don't want God to be jealous with us. We don't want Him to be angry with us. You can, you can imagine if somebody made a play for your mate and you saw that, 
Jealousy would be aroused and you would do what you needed to do to protect your mate and to drive that threat away. Well, God saw the worshipers of other gods as a threat to his people. And he says, you need to get rid of them. Now, we're not called to swing the sword like they were in the day of Joshua and Judges. But we're called in the same way to be distinctly separate, keeping ourselves apart for God's use in our life. And we're to fight against a very godless culture that we live in. So this is the question that I have for us at this point. Where are we compromising God's call in our life? This is what they did. They did some of the things God asked them to do. They took some of the land. They took some of the cities. They took enough to get by. And then they just settled in for a peaceful existence without doing all that God had asked them to do. And though he had warned them and warned them and warned them what would happen if they did that, they still did it because it was just probably easier to do. Just easier to do. And I'm, I'm wondering, where have we compromised what God has asked us to do? Where have we partially gone in the land? Where have we partially taken, uh, taken over? But other places we've allowed to look just like the rest of the world. It is an act of disobedience to be partially obedient. Now, as we came to the end of chapter 1, things were not just terribly tragic. But the people had been tolerant of those Canaanites in the land. And the Baals that Joshua hated and all those of his generation, by the time we get to the book of, jo by the time we get to the book of, of Judges, they're just another god to the grandkids. And this is the typical thing that happens. We look at Judges chapter 2, verse 4. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, when he told them all they had done wrong, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And so they named that place Bochum, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Bochum, by the way, means weepers. This is the place of the weepers. God told them in verses 1 through 4, Look, you've gone after the wrong gods. You've compromised your worship of me. And I'm going to tear the land from you. I'm going to, uh, you've not obeyed me. I will not drive them out because you've not been obedient to me. And it says the people wept and they named that place Bochum and they sacrificed the Lord. But here's the problem. Even though they wept, they did not repent and they did not change. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This is the problem. It doesn't mean that they did not know of God, but they knew of God, but they did not know Him. They did not come into relationship with Him. This is the failure. This is the classic failure of the succeeding generation. This is the fathers not passing down their faith to their sons where their sons grabbed it and it became their own faith. It was their father's faith, but not their own faith. They knew that God had delivered their fathers out of Egypt. They knew that God had delivered their fathers across the Jordan and into the land and they'd beaten all the armies, did all that. But in doing that, they did not grab a hold of God as their God. He was the God of their fathers. And so this is the question I ask. 
what are we doing with our children and our grandchildren to be, make sure that the God that we worship, the God who is the living God, is the God that they're going to worship? And it's not about getting them to observe the same worship practices or sing the same songs or do the same things in church that we used to do 30 or 50 or 100 years ago. That's not the deal. It is, do they know our God? If we know God, are we making sure that they know our God? And Israel practiced what I call spiritual dementia. They knew of God, but they didn't really have a relationship to Him. They just forgot all that he had done, all that he commanded, and all that he wanted to do. I'm reading a book on dementia right now, and it's, it's important to me because my parents both had dementia, and it was, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. Dementia causes you to forget all kinds of stuff. Um, and Israel had become ungrateful, and they forgot what God had done for them. But... In my parents' case, they began to forget things like where they put their credit cards and where they put their driver's license, and mom forgot how to cook and then forgot what they liked to eat. And they forgot the medicine, they forgot how to turn on the stove, and they forgot to turn off the stove, and they forgot uh, where their keys were. And there were just stinking circumstances every day because they would forget. And it's a disease. They did not, they lost the ability to remember. But what happened to Israel here is that dementia, but not by a disease, but rather by a choice. They just never made the God of their fathers their own God. And so that generation grew up and uh, they just, they didn't worship God. They didn't worship the true God. They had become successful, but they were not obedient. It was pragmatic success as they took the land over, but there was not a superiority because they did not remain faithful to God. And it's possible for believers to do the right things and have the right look and to be in the land and yet not have a relationship and not be doing what He would ask us to do. God knows where we have failed Him. And He asks us not to be partially obedient, but rather completely obedient. We read part of it, but I want you to go back and look at chapter 2 beginning with the 14th verse. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and He sold them into the hands of the enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, but they did not listen to the judges, but they played the harlot and went after other gods. If, if I were going to write the story, right between verse 15 and 16, I think something got left out. In verse 15, life is horrible. And in verse 16, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges. I, I would have thought that right there was the part would say, that, And the people then recognized they had sinned. They repented. They fell on their faces. They cried out to God in prayer. And then, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges. But see what it says? It goes right from 15 to 16. Because this is the God that we serve. He said, I'm going to have everything against you and it's going to go terrible. But I will raise up judges who will deliver you. And this is the kind of God we serve. A God who's merciful, who already had a plan. Even as he was punishing his people for being disobedient, he was going to raise judges up and say, look, come back to me. And I will deliver you. It is not too late. 
We hear often of people who are afraid of surrendering their lives to the Lord because they're worried that if they surrender their life to the Lord, if they truly let Him have control of their life, He's going to take them somewhere they don't want to go. He's going to have them meet somebody they don't want to know. He's going to have them do a job they don't want to do. He's going to have them be involved in something they don't want to be a part of their life. And so in fear of God, they are not going to be obedient. When God is the kind of God who is going to send people to call us back over and over again because He loves us. He does not leave us alone. This is a jealous God. And because we are His people, because these were His people, and we are His people, He is not going to abandon us. He will give us over when we're disobedient, but He'll also send judges, people who will call out the truth in our life. In our case, not judges, probably Sunday school teachers, or neighbors, or spouses, or uh, Bible studies we're in, or pastors, or someone who will call us back to the truth. That truth is that God's way is the only way. So I want to remind us of the truths of this book of Judges. That God is still God even after the death of His, of his leader. No matter what tragic thing may happen, so no matter how the, the earth shifts under your feet, God is still God. And we praise Him for that. And the last point, that He continually calls us back to Himself. He never gives up on us as His people. He calls us back. These are comforting things to know. But it's the middle two lessons today that we need to respond to. That partial obedience to God is never enough. It is never enough. And even when we cannot see the consequence of being mostly good, mostly right, mostly obedient, and that little part we're not, we don't see where that goes. God does. And it's huge. We need to be completely obedient. And then the failure of the next generation. I, I don't know how Joshua and his contemporaries failed, but somehow, some way, it didn't get transferred. And God, as we've been blessed this morning, see the, a, a room full of first graders come up and get their Bibles. But it's up to us to make sure that not just getting a Bible, not just being in Sunday school, but rather are they really learning the truth of God's Word and is our God becoming their God? Are we praying for them and encouraging them and, and walking alongside of them? We call us to be a family and to be part of the parenting process involved here. Are we doing all we can do to make sure the next generation doesn't fail our God because the consequences are tragic? Keith always says in his sermons that God is the main player in every story. And He is in this story. And He's the main actor in this story. And we're comforted by what God does, but we're reminded that He does not put up with partial or secondary or half-hearted obedience. He reaches out to His people to see us always be obedient that we might, that we might be used by Him in whatever way He wants to. And so we come to the time of invitation this morning, and I ask you this simply. Have you been obedient everywhere you know you need to be obedient? I'm not asking if you've been perfect. None of us are. But have you been obedient to what God has shown you to do as much as He's given you the strength and grace to do it? Have you done that? Have you sought Him with all of your heart? Or have we done the parts that are easy and convenient? and left out the hard parts. We've been gentle, we've been nice, we've been kind, we've been good. We haven't been maybe a witness. We haven't confronted sin. We haven't let the Lord really change us. We've just done the things that are easy and not allowed Him to be Lord. We come to a time of invitation and we ask the Lord, what in our life 
needs to change. Father, I thank you for your word, the truth of your word, the seriousness of being obedient. I thank you that you reached out. You sent judges time after time after time. But the story of the book of Judges is the people quickly forgot and went back to worshiping the false gods. Father, all because they would not be obedient in the beginning. May we, Father, recognize where we've been partially but not completely obedient. And may we be about that which you've called us and asked us and commanded us and gifted us to do. May we be about your business that we might honor you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.